And welcome to A Bit More Complicated, the podcast where you can hear science-based discussions about important topics, issues, and problems in society, and what we can do to make them better. I'm Manny Galvan at UNC Chapel Hill. And I'm Dylan Selterman at Johns Hopkins University. Today we're going to dive into a discussion about anti-racism. This topic is often in the news and in popular discourse about society. We often hear people asking, to what extent should organizations and institutions have a role in social justice? We mentioned this briefly on some of our recent episodes, including our interview with Scott Barry Kaufman, so go check that out if you haven't already. But we wanted to take a deeper dive into this topic, and we thought it would be great to speak with Dr. Eric Smith, since he has written and spoken a lot about this, about this issue before. Dr. Smith is a professor of English language literacy and rhetoric at York College of Pennsylvania. He is the author of several books, including A Critique of Anti-Racism in Rhetoric and Composition, The Semblance of Empowerment. Dr. Smith is also a writing fellow for Heterodox Academy and is a co-founder of Free Black Thought, a website and newsletter dedicated to amplifying black voices that are seldom heard on mainstream platforms. We're fortunate to have him on the podcast today to talk about these topics with us. Dr. Eric Smith, welcome to our podcast. Thanks for having me. So you wrote uh, an entire book critiquing anti-racism. So it seems like you're really motivated against some of these ideas that have gotten pretty mainstream, especially over the past few years. Can you describe the central thesis of your book and give an overview of the main points you're making here? What do you see as the main problems or issues with anti-racism as a framework? And what are some ideas that you think are better? Well, the central thesis of my book uh, is that disempowering practices are being sold as empowering practices when it comes to anti-racism and helping uh, students who have been traditionally marginalized, uh, otherwise known as BIPOC or just POC, students of color. Um, and I think there is an overemphasis on concepts like lived experience. Um, there's too much participation in what's called prefigurative politics. I'll explain that momentarily. And there's a general shirking of, well, rhetoric. We have rhetoric professors who are actually doing activism and using rhetoric as an excuse to do activism. Rhetoric is kind of a Trojan horse, uh, if you will. And, uh, well, I don't like that. And uh, when I said that I didn't like that, the backlash kind of motivated me to write this book and another book, uh, several articles, uh, co-founding Free Black Thought and some other endeavors uh, that I have going on. So, you know, uh, it was kind of a good thing in that sense, but it's a bad thing in that there, there's a problem to begin with, right? And what's more, anti-racist pedagogy, so the anti-racist uh, educational philosophy is pretty infantilizing. You know, it also essentializes uh, racial groups. So, you know, there is this tacit, sometimes not so tacit, sometimes explicit um, idea that all people of a certain race are the same. They see the world the same, they experience things the same, right? Um, they uh, interpret uh, assignments and things like that the same. Um, I was reading a book today that was blowing my mind about uh, you know, violence in the work of composition. And what this book is about is that writing practice is inherently racist. 
because you know uh, the students are learning a Eurocentric uh, form of writing, right, and not writing in their own languages or or, or dialects or or something like that. Uh, totally neglects. You know, um, pragmatism and neglect what the students want because most of them are there to learn that, right? Um, why would you pay tuition for something you already know? And it, it's indicative of you know, a, a kind of a manipulation of a certain group of people for one's own political advances. Uh, and that you know, has a historical precedent that goes way back, I, I guess, think of the 20th century alone. And I'll uh, give you many examples. But all that has happened. So I, I decided to write a book, A, calling it out, um, B, explaining meticulously why it's wrong, right? And, and hoping that I can get people not necessarily on board, but at least looking at this. Um, my motto is that sunlight is the best disinfectant. So if you can't change something from the inside, go outside and you know, kind of uh, get people's attention and see what that can do. So. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's been kind of a mini theme on our show. You can't fix something if you can't see it. So thanks for speaking your mind about this topic. You're welcome. Yeah, I appreciate you being here. I think um, based on I, I just spent the morning kind of looking at some of your other interviews and reading some of your writing and stuff like that. I think I've encountered just a, a series of things that I don't necessarily agree with. Um, and so I'm happy that you're here and are willing to like have a discussion where we don't necessarily agree on these topics and hopefully it's, uh, yes. useful for the audience. I want to go through some of your critiques and then us like kind of go mm -hmm. back and forth and talk about them a little bit. I think maybe we should start at just what, uh, might be the issue for me. I think part of the problem here might be semantic. So I think for some people, when they use the word anti-racism, it refers to a general movement um, in the United States of black liberation and equality, while others use it to refer to more specific things like white, mm -hmm. white fragility or the writings of yes. Max Kendi or somebody like that. Uh, my view, and I think I've seen in some of your mm -hmm. reviews, you kind of share this, uh, is that anti-racism is straightforwardly a movement that has roots back in the abolition movement and continues mm -hmm. into the current era. Um, and that's the way you like to, from what, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's the way you kind of try, try to use the term. And there's this other version of anti-racism that, that you don't like. Right. Um, that is more from from your interviews and writing. It seems like it's more of this quasi Marxist theory that embraces victimhood. It embraces an us them logic yes. and nihilism. And so for me, this interpretation seems more consistent with what I perceive as a straw man version of anti-racism that uh, largely comes from people like James Lindsay, Chris Rufo, some of these folks who have kind of what I think misrepresented CRT and misrepresented anti-racism and PC culture and blah, 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 all those things in order to, you know, maneuver through a right wing project, a political project. But I think this is a good opportunity for us to just talk through um, the critiques that are coming from you um, and see to what extent you agree with that kind of project or not and and see if we can just okay um, well first of all I can you know I, I can show you I guess um, academics in my field mm -hmm. who will tell you that Lindsay and Rufo are correct that's what they're doing uh, and they're very explicit about it I've written about that a couple of times um, like they'll agree yes with Lindsay and Rufo I, I'm a Marxist I think teaching uh, students uh, of color standard English is a bad thing because it maintains the status quo and the status quo is bad. 
and students of color who want to learn standardized English are being immature and selfish. These are, I'm not paraphrasing. So uh, yeah, that's a, that's a normal thing. Um, And yeah. I think you could find, yeah, like somebody who says, uh, somebody who's like has a bad opinion yeah. on any topic, right? So the question is like whether that is representative of the academy as a whole or whether that's representative the, of- Yeah, these, these aren't uh, normal people. These are leaders in the field. Like these are people more strong, more prominent than I am uh, in the field saying this. This is, this, is, this is normal. Is there just anywhere I can read this for myself? And uh, you can read saying, my or... stuff. Uh, about it, which has citations that you can use. Um, you can read the work of Asao Inoue. There are various other people as well. It's, it's not just a couple of people. Uh, going. There's a network you know, of uh, people who are doing uh, this kind of work, this anti-racist pedagogy, which is all about an oppressor-oppressed narrative and not really about, well, teaching, writing, and rhetoric. And, um, and they're, they will proudly tell you that. Gotcha. Yeah. Like I said, I'm not I'm not in rhetoric at all. I'm in science. I'm in social science as a, a psychologist. Yes. Dylan and I are psychologists. So um, we do like I, I will just take your word for it that 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 those kinds of things are happening. And 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 like you said, we could verify with some of the sources that okay. uh, presumably you can share with us. But let's just get into the kind of the nitty gritty. Right. So what I would say is like mm-hmm. CRT critical race theory as it initially emerged and anti-racism more broadly are kind of projects of the political left to address historical and current racial inequality racism and the anti-crt and similarly the anti-crt and anti-anti-racism movement seems to be a largely right-wing project and you can kind of see this in how coverage of fox news is linked to election cycle so when fox news is talking about crt they stop talking about it as much after mm-hmm. elections end, and they talk about it a lot in the run-up to those elections. Uh, the Brookings Institution has this great website where they've covered the many attempts by right-wing legislators to uh-huh. cancel CRT, in a sense, with legislation that bans the discussion of CRT and CRT-related concepts. So I guess I'm just curious, do you agree with these legislative moves that are very prominent, are at the highest level of our institutions to ban these kinds of- I don't believe in banning academia? anything. I, I, I believe in allowing a conversation uh, between you know uh, different ideologies and things like that. Uh, it's hard to have that conversation, unfortunately. Um, but I don't, I, I think banning this is the wrong move. Uh, for for various reasons. I don't like the history of banning things and where that leads. Um, I think uh, banning things uh, is, you know, a disservice to the American people. They should look at it, what it is and see for themselves and, uh, you know, interpret it for themselves and, and, and determine themselves whether this is legitimate or not. Um, regarding this being a uh, right-wing cudgel, I mean, that's unfortunate, but you know, uh, it's it's not going to stop me from talking about it. I, I'm a lifelong Democrat. You know, I I, I can't I don't see myself, um, you know, voting to right wing conservative uh, uh, in the in the near future. I, I am I identify as somebody on the left. You know, so I, I'm, I'm looking at these right. things and I'm, I'm looking at the illiberal aspects of it. CRT isn't all bad. You know, there are some good concepts in it, like uh, intersectionality, uh, for example. Um, anti-essentialism originally, that's been spun into something a little different. Um, but, uh, but it, and I like a lot of uh, scholars in CRT. I like some of the stuff that they, Derek Bell did 
You know, uh, I, I, I like some of the stuff Crenshaw did. I don't like some of the stuff they did too, right? Uh, but it's it's not all bad. It gets it gets weird, and it gets to be synonymous with what we call woke when we see it transformed into something called critical social justice and and critical uh, pedagogy to a degree. Although I I think there are parts of that that are fine. I mean, people uh, you know dismiss Paulo Freire. I don't think that's the best way to go. There's a lot of Freire that is valuable. You know that that has informed my teaching. Um, but I can understand why uh, they take issue with the um, kind of the Marxist bent going on there. Um, so it's nuanced is what I'm trying to say. This is not just a pardon the pun black and white. You know, there's a there's a lot going on here. Um, and, you know, a lot of people who are talking about CRT have only read a couple of things. Right. Um, or they've heard about it. Right. And, and they're, they're going off of that. They haven't really, uh, you know, they, they haven't done a deep dive into it and most people won't do a deep dive into it uh which is why i feel like i need to you know get out there op-eds and things like that and and talk about what's going on yeah we're all about nuance on this show so okay very welcome here that's good for sure and um and i think like the polling supports that entirely right like if you if you pull people yeah. do you like crt people have opinions but then if you pull people like do you know what it is most yeah. people are, are, are like no i don't uh, know what it is let's talk about the just infantilization mm -hmm. claim so like what do you mean by crt or anti-racism or, or critical pedagogy i'm yeah. exactly what term you want to use what does it mean to uh they people Students are infantilized. They're, they're, they're essentialized as people who are downtrodden and need help before they even walk into the classroom. And when you present yourself as somebody who doesn't need any of that stuff, doesn't need special pedagogy, right? Um, doesn't see the writing of standardized English as inherently bad, then you're an odd person. You're, you're inauthentically um, Black. Um, I talk in the book about professors who, you know, uh, when when their students say, no, we do want to learn this, it's, it's a tool. They look, they shake their heads like, oh, these poor, these poor duped students, right? They they still just don't understand, you know, um, and, and there's a lot of that going on. You know, I mentioned a couple of people already, Frankie Condon, that's the other person um, who is really into this stuff. Not, I, I haven't seen any places where she firmly embraces Marxism, but she's her ideology aligns with it uh, substantially. Uh, but anyway, um, people like that uh, and their followers, which are many, um, they they see the uh, student of color as somebody who's always harmed by whiteness, right? And I don't think that's the case. I think students have a lot more resilience, more emotional intelligence, and they don't interpret things the way, you know, these people think they do. You know, what what one person of color calls a microaggression, another person of color would call an innocuous statement. Right. We're, not everybody is so damaged. Right. By uh, these slights. Um, it's 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 this idea that black people are so fragile. Right. That if you say something uh, remotely problematic, they're just going to crumble. Right. Um, if, if you don't have representation, then they're going to crumble. Now, representation is a great thing when you're young, 
it's good to see people uh, of your group or people who look like your family in prominent positions. If you're 30 and you need it, that's a different story. You know, um, even even if you're in college and you need it, I think that's a different story. You know, isn't isn't the the purpose of representation different though? Like as a kid, I think that's right that you see people mm-hmm. who you know how many kids who are growing up in Southside Chicago right. know right. a doctor, a black doctor that they can look up to. Like maybe right. not 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 enough. And I think that uh, you're right that that's like the purpose that uh, representation serves. But I think as you get older, the purpose that representation serves is that you have someone from your community who can help make decisions in uh. important situations. And so uh, there was somebody on Twitter who was just talking the other day about how uh, they had a patient who came in with a head wound. She uh-huh. was wearing a particular thing uh-huh. uh, black women wear. Uh, I don't know if weave or I don't, I don't know exactly what it was called. She was the only black doctor around. She knew mm-hmm. how to remove it in a way that allowed them to work on the patient more, yeah. more readily. I heard this. And, yeah. And that's kind of a, an interesting case. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting case that, you know, I just read on Twitter, but I think there's lots of evidence that representation just matters in terms of decision making and like having somebody there who is familiar with your community when you're serving your community. Many students n- don't ever have a teacher who college students, cause you brought up college students as well, will never be taught by a black teacher. And that, you know, that's just uh, an issue for students. They want to be there's there's evidence that having a black teacher benefits you down the road um so i think like representation is not just about like kids looking up to people it's also about these other bigger issues um the black did you say uh people from their community in in the uh okay who share the same like kind of cultural background came from oh okay um because i don't believe in the whole you know black community thing i think there are various black communities, there are individuals and things like that. Um, so I'm not, I'm not a big, you know, I, I have to see somebody uh, from who looks like me, or, you know, who has the same kind of background in a situation for me to be safe or comfortable uh, there. I get your point about the doctor who knew how to, to uh, do or take uh, off the, uh, um, whatever it was, that uh, she was wearing. I didn't I didn't get the entire yeah. story just now, but I remember reading about that a, a while ago. And yeah, that's, you know, that makes sense, you know, to, to have that kind of knowledge there. Um, but I mean, what if you're a black person and you don't know that, you know, you, 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 you have, you've never done your, your hair in that way. Um, or, you know, or you're a white person right. who does know that. You know, I, I that's that's very beneficial. Right. Yes. But I don't think it's this this capital in necessity that is being made out to be. And what's more, I am coming from my field in a lot of ways. And it is kind of sold like that, um, like uh, just seeing somebody uh, who looks like you will give you the confidence to do it. And I, I think that's a bit overboard. I think that's part of the infantilization. You know, I um, you know, if if. If I go to a restaurant and I want a prime rib, I'm not going to look around and see if any black people are eating it. You know, um, I'm <laughs> I'm going to order it because I want it. You know, I'm going to I'm going to you know yeah. uh, go into a certain uh, field or or a certain discipline because I want to. I don't care if you look like me or not. You know, um, and these students are being you know reified as people who need that, who need the optics in order to do something. And I think that's the wrong way to go. I think you should instill um, not just confidence, but achievement orientation in these students, Uh, you know, uh, self-awareness 
and you know uh, the intrinsic motivation and determination to do what you want to do when you want to do it in life, right? I think education is about giving people agency. And uh, teaching rhetoric and, and, and writing is part of that because it helps people negotiate certain situations where um, that may come in handy. So that's what I see as an educator. And if that's what I see as an educator, then the whole representation thing kind of doesn't, you know, fit nicely into that. Um, would you say that wokeness or anti-racism is antithetical to that kind of like doing things like mm -hmm. you talk about empowerment a lot? Um, do you feel like it's antithetical uh, to empowerment? Uh, yes, and it how? is antithetical to empowerment because an, an empowered person is fine with speaking with people who don't agree uh, with them and with him or her. Right. Uh, an empowered person doesn't look at the world as oppressor and oppressed. Right. Things are more nuanced than that. An empowered person doesn't say something like, um, the question isn't whether racism happened, is how it manifested in this situation. Um, that is the opposite of empowerment because you're abiding by a ready-made story that you are projecting onto a situation instead of going into the situation, gauging what's going on and acting accordingly. That level of, of uh, adaptability um, is not a part of what I've seen out of anti-racism and critical social justice. So I, I think it's inherently disempowering in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, uh, so one study, uh, first, first of all, like we're a science podcast. We try talking about the science behind things. And um, one thing that I tried to do when I encountered you making that argument is like, let me see if I can find any evidence about engaging mm -hmm. in activism as a indicator that somebody becomes less empowered or is more unhappy or become has worse mental health or something like that. And so I went to go look. There's a few studies, not all of them uh -huh. show the same thing. Uh, one that was in 2021 showed that engaging, engaging in activism actually is associated with greater mental health. Um, and when I think about this from my perspective, yeah. it makes sense that you are kind of, you're grabbing your, the political system by the horns and mm -hmm. you're engaging with it and you're trying to make it better in a way that you see as a way to make it better. And that actually is in and mm -hmm. of itself empowering yeah. and makes you feel empowered. Um, do, do you think is that, but that seems- like I didn't, I didn't say, that, like, I didn't say activism was disempowering. Yeah. I said, you know, the anti-racist ideology, you could be an activist and not abide by their ideology. You know, that's, that's pretty, that's pretty. But, but a lot of these people were like attending BLM movements, like but presumably anti-racism and wokeness are fairly mm -hmm. high at a high level in these settings. Not necessarily, like not necessarily. I know a lot of people who were involved with BLM, uh, local chapters and things like that, who insist that they weren't doing this woke kind of thing. And I know people who were very much doing that uh, woke kind of thing. So that does differ. Uh, BLM isn't as uh, organized as people assume uh, it is, but to go back, I, you can do, I mean, people were doing activism long before, you know, uh, CRT or, or CSJ or, or any of these things were a part of uh, mm -hmm. the mix. So, you know, there, there are certain ways of going about things uh, that I think are not very fruitful, right? Um, Bill Maher made a joke uh, a, a while ago, you know, uh, China can build a bridge in four days but we spend four months arguing over what to call it. You know, that, that's what I mean by uh, disempowering uh, takes on, on, uh, on um, anti-racism and things like that. You know, uh, changing the name, is it going to help anything? 
really. But the theatrics behind um, a lot of uh, anti-racist uh, action, right, is is done for its own sake. It's done to say, hey, see, see what we're doing over here. And they're not really doing anything. You know, so I, I do think ultimately when it comes to what's called this assessor ideology, critical social justice, this idea of oppressor oppressed, this idea that words are violence, right? Uh, this idea that uh, free speech is inherently racist, uh, things like that are, are ultimately disempowering. Yes. Just to piggyback on that, Manny, I see in one of the articles you were alluding to about the association between activism and well-being, some of the ways they measure it are in terms of general civic engagement, which seems to be pretty broad. So, for example, here's one of the survey items, quote, I attend community meetings and issues that affect people where I live, and I believe I can make a difference in my community. So maybe, you know, some of that is with the type of activism you're describing, or it could be other types of activism. For sure. I think room for expanding this area of research and like pinning down this thing. But I think like if you're going to make the claim, there should be strong evidence that 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 this is like if you're going to say that wokeness, anti-racism is, is hurting people, there should be pretty strong evidence that it is. And so I was trying to look for some kind of evidence that there that that's indeed true, that, you know, measurable, quantified in a peer-reviewed study, okay. like that kind of stuff. I'd like to ask you about some of the backlash to some of the things you've been saying, the points you've been making. I saw in an article you wrote that you weren't expecting white people to accuse you of being white supremacist. Did, did someone really say that to you? Is that the kind uh, of thing you've experienced in your field? Yes. Because that sounds terrible. Uh, yeah, it totally happened. Um, and I know you guys are all about uh, evidence, so I can show you the emails, if you like, uh, as well as the tweets and yeah. things like that. I mean, I believe you. It's just no, I a believe shocking you do, thing. I mean, it, it's shocking for many reasons, but I, I, I wanted to yeah. share that with our audience, just in terms of the context of the kinds of things you've experienced. The last two books I wrote, I had, you know, um, a lot of empirical evidence saying, look what was going on here. The publishers, both publishers made me take it out because they were like, we want the people to read it and not throw it across the room. So I have a pile of that evidence. There's a website, not a website, but an archive online where all this stuff is right there. I'm curious, you know, just to go back to this, it seems like so much of the pushback you're getting is from people in the field who are, they themselves, white. I guess I'm curious to know how it got this way, where white liberals in particular have these ideas that minority groups are monolithic. And, you know, you're pushing back hard against this. You're saying, mm -hmm. no, there's there's actually a lot of diverse thinking that minorities are not monolithic. And that makes it so much more difficult to do anti-racism in any capacity because we're not going to agree on everything. Mm -hmm. And I guess, how did it get this way? Like, how did it get to the point where, as you say, people think there's a correct or proper way to be non-white or to be black? Like, where did this come from? Well, a lot of uh, critical pedagogy, which derives from critical theory, you know, uh, the point is to transform society, right? That's the ultimate goal. That's the telos, um, not the educational telos that I have, right? For providing agency to these students so they can 
you know, have a successful and, you know, self-actualized life in this society um, because critical pedagogues think this society is a problem. You know, um, uh, one of my uh, colleagues in the field, uh, Sal Nue, will tell you, you know, um, their their desire to write in standardized English uh, is going to make them successful in this bad world. So yeah, that's not my goal here. My, my goal here is to transform it, you know, and, and get them to not want to do that kind of thing. Um, so if that's your plan and you're trying to transform society and you're using basically uh, students of color as your um, raison d'etre for, for doing that, your, 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 your primary impetus for doing that, then those students of color have to be a certain way. They have to look at the world a certain way or else it doesn't work. You know, if he had a bunch of black people like me, that wouldn't work, you know? So they have to sell this idea that there's a right way to be black and that right way uh, involves a bit of misery, uh, pity, uh, oppression, right? And all these things that come from quote unquote whiteness. So there's a there's a narrative that needs to be perpetuated here. And in order after, in order for that narrative to be perpetuated, uh, people of color have to have a certain disposition. Yeah, uh, there's this quote from Clifford Thompson in The Washington Post that I really liked. And he basically said, if a person is black, why use Uncle Tom unless it's to punish the person for their color as well as their behavior? And I think like yeah. that's the point you're really making is like, why, why are you coming after me specifically? Like if you disagree with my ideas, yeah. oh, disagree God, with yes. my ideas. <laughs> you know, don't don't disagree with me saying something that you disagree hey. with because I'm black. And I agree. I agree with you. Like that's and, and what and what Thompson is saying. I just think that it is just a, another manifestation. Yes. Of and, and that's the disempowerment. Right? I, I'm talking about. Uh, that's the uh, infantilization and things like that. The fact that if I have, if I critique your idea, I'm insulting you, right? It has nothing to do with you as a person. You have an idea that I don't quite agree with. Let's have a conversation about that. Um, there are a lot of people, many people who can't have that conversation. That conversation is actually um, a aspect of whiteness. It maintains the status quo, because if you're talking, then you're 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 talking to reform. They want to revolutionize, right? They want to transform. So they're not even going to engage in that kind of thing. And I, I think that's disempowering to be afraid of talking about your own work. I think that's bad, and that is a common trait. It's, it's a it's a normal trait. It's not it's not a aberration, you know, uh, with this group. That's that's the normal way to do it. Yeah, I mean, uh, I still have trouble with like the central tendency of academics to be like that versus not or just yeah. like, an outlier or whatever. But we don't have to dwell on that too long. But uh, one thing I want to say is on this term, this like concept of like racial groups being a monolith. I agree they're not, but there are certain things. And I think this is part of that conversation. There are certain things that are a normative within certain groups. There are just like sets of beliefs that are really common among black folks that are not common among white folks. And there are sets of beliefs that are also harmful towards black community members, at least in the perspective of different people can have different views. I mean, you're saying that anti-racism is harmful towards black folks to some extent, the way that it infantilizes people or whatever. So you also have beliefs about certain things being harmful to the black uh, community. Well, I mean, it's generally. Maybe, maybe not liking. So I, I don't. Uh, and and right. harmful as in unhelpful, not harmful as in they're going to crawl into the right. fetal position and weep, which is how it's being used in my field when it comes to whiteness. 
yeah, I mean, I think maybe somebody who disagrees with you would say that that's a it's not mischaracterization it's not. of their position or whatever. But well, they would be wrong. They, they would say so. <laughs> and they would probably characterize you, and you would say they're mischaracterizing you um, back and forth. And who knows? Yeah, right hold on one second. Um, this there's several books sure. you can read. This one just came out. Go ahead and read that and tell me if I'm wrong. This entire book is words are bad. Just for the audience, it's violence it's in the word violence. of composition. Sorry, please, up everyone up. watching this, please get this book and read it and see what I'm talking about. Oh, By um, Christy, Christy Fleckens, Fleck whose work Stein. I like. You know, I I, I like her work. I, I've cited her uh, a few times in in my writing, um, but yeah, she's responsible for this. Um, to be fair, I'm not done with it. You know, so maybe there are some chapters uh, in the second half of it that aren't so egregious but um but yeah yeah man i'm not i'm not exaggerating you this is this is over 20 years of experience here i bit my tongue for like 17 of them uh, I, I, it's not i'm not why, and why would i why would i do that what do i get out of it yeah uh, so where i was going with what i was saying is like that there are certain ideas that are normative within certain uh -huh. communities within people who I self-identify as being black are you know I, I was looking at pupil earlier 58% of black Americans think that US institutions need to be completely rebuilt to address fundamental biases against some groups in addition to 19% saying that we could do more within the current institutions and the remaining are the ones that say very they very few or little or nothing needs to be done to change those institutions and that's way different than the people who identify as white in those surveys so i do think there it, while there is not a monolith there are still people who say little or nothing needs to be done there is just this central tendency around people who identify as black having more stronger feelings about we need to do something about racism yeah, I in agree. this country um and so in that sense like there, there could be an individual who says racism is not a problem, but that person is not a good representation of the ideas that are in the, the larger group as a whole or on um, average. I never said that racism isn't a problem. Um, I think, yeah, I know. No, I'm not. Yes. I'm just being clear. Um, but, I'm not that. Okay. You know, uh, I think it is a problem. I disagree with the methodologies people are using to deal with it. And it, it's really that simple. And even that is enough to uh, make me a pariah in the field. You know, uh, I, I, I believe we right. need to fight racism. I, I believe we need to end it. I have a different strategy than yours. I might as well be a Nazi. <laughs> and yeah, I know. I mean, I wouldn't say that, but uh, I, I can see how Twitter would be like that. No, 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 on Twitter nobody on Twitter. People in my field will tell you that or me that like to me, it's, it's not a Twitter thing. It's yeah, it's, it's, it's that crazy. The other thing I would talk about is what's called internalized racism. So many members of underrepresented minority groups will internalize ideas, stereotypes, and ideologies that reinforce racial mm -hmm. inequality or racism. Um, and a powerful instance of this is the doll study, right? So there's you bring kids into a room, you show them a white and a black doll, you mm -hmm. ask them, these are like seven-year-olds yeah. just learned how to speak and you ask them like which of these dolls is smarter which of these dolls is like prettier um etc etc and all of like the positive things are associated with the white doll and the mm -hmm. negative things are associated more on average with the with the black doll and so clearly there is some kind of internalized racism and what's interesting is there's been a couple studies on this uh linking internalized racism to policy preferences so black people who have higher internalized racism are less supportive of progressive policies like in terms of welfare or something like that 
And so I think some of the argument is is some of that is embedded in some of these arguments that that people make is that people's beliefs are stemming from some kind of belief that black folks are, you know, uh, somehow inferior and that's and and so that's why we don't we don't need these like different changes in society and it seems like there's some evidence to support that what, what do you think about internalized racism as a concept and then in this conversation uh broadly about how uh people might be have some kind of internalized racism which drives them to the political right or to oppose uh, um well regarding the children and the doll experiment and things like that that's what i was talking about regarding representation you know, um, and and children. I, I think uh, media is getting more diverse, much more diverse. Uh, movies, commercials, TV shows, things like that. It's a good thing. Uh, I think people need to see that. I think this idea of uh, all these positive um, attributes going to the white doll and all these vices going to the black doll will will dissipate as that becomes more and more normal as a new generation um, is raised with that level of diversity um, on a TV screen and you know hopefully in, in other uh, real life situations. Um, but regarding internalized racism and and why people uh, vote or answer questions the way they do. I mean, I'd like to think that mm -hmm. people come to their conclusions because of good reasons. They've thought about it. You know, some people have actually done research and they've decided that this is what is best. It's not because deep down they hate their blackness. And I, I, I think and, and that's that's part of the infantilization, you know. Um, oh, you believe that you must have internalized racism. No, I thought about it. Well, it's not about must. Right. It's like. It's, it's that they have the data. The data, right? They responded to the questionnaires about internalized racism, and then that predicts their policy preferences. So they're linked statistically, right? It's not just like, I'm not just po posing yeah. this, we can share the paper with you. That's it's, unfortunate yeah. for those people, I guess, you know, uh, mm -hmm. yeah. So to be fair, the questions in the paper, many, they're not necessarily tapping into mm -hmm. internalized prejudice. like concept of internalized prejudice is not being directly measured here. They're asking people a series of attitude questions. And it's basically an attitude that is expressing uh, negative associations with laziness and unintelligence. Yeah. Right. So I guess one of the things that I've noticed about the rhetoric on internalized prejudice is that it makes it so that these ideas cannot be falsifiable. Like, if you have someone who supports progressive policies to deal with racism, you'd say, good, that probably came from, you know, what you're describing, mainstream sentiment. But then if you disagree, it must be due to internalized racism. But everyone, regardless of their viewpoints, everybody's getting exposure to the mainstream sentiment and ideas. So how does that work? It doesn't really make any sense. It's if, if there's something in the social atmosphere that causes some people to internalize negative stereotypes about their group, why doesn't it affect most people in that group? No, because there's count, there's countervailing effects in society, right? So sometimes like people are have internalized racism and that and there are countering effects of that, right? Which is like black pride and, and other aspects of culture. Right, that, that that's my point. To not, that's that's right. exactly what I'm saying. It could go either way. Mm -hmm. So how is it possible that we can identify any kind of internalization going on here? I don't know. We're kind of getting a bit into the weeds. Here. I, I, the weeds are fun. Sure. Come on, the weeds are great, man. 
uh, totally sh- share at least share those uh those surveys those studies uh in the chat or something for me yeah I'll, okay I'll put it in the chat okay yeah, we'll, we'll definitely drop those in the show notes uh, i guess the thing that i like to push back on a little bit is this notion that things in society affect people except when they don't but we can still reliably point to a source for people's attitudes, even if it doesn't happen reliably. That just doesn't make sense to me. It's probabilistic. That's all. That's everything that's probabilistic. It affects some people, but not everybody. That's that's how probabilities work. Right. I'm confused, I guess, by your critique, but. You guys are the, the science minded social scientists uh, anyway, so. So uh, there's that, and I could learn a thing or two from listening to you guys. But um, there's this concept of uh, you know stimulus response uh, theory, right? Everybody responds to uh, the same stimuli in the same way, and groups respond to the same stimuli in the same way. Uh, that's not true. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah and, I don't and, think that's true. Not not all people respond to the same. Right, right, right. Yeah, well, sure. well, how about within a group, and that group being black? even in within a group because like groups are infinitely complex right like i could i i can create a group of one that is me given all yeah. and you you've talked about this before in terms of intersectionality right like uh all of those intersections mm-hmm. come into play and then you are actually a group of one who has all your specific like uh qualities yeah. to you um and if we get rid of one of those and more people join your group until you end up with like human mm-hmm. as the biggest group okay. Yeah, with this study, you're right. It's probabilistic, but we haven't identified internalized prejudice here. That's not actually being measured. All we're measuring is people's attitudes, which, as you said, may come from one or another source. And if we know that people don't all respond the same way to the same stimuli, then we don't have a way to identify the mechanism of internalized prejudice leading to those attitude survey responses. In this case, the attitude itself is what we would call internalized racism because it's the, the attitudes that are being measured here are, do you think black people are lazy and unintelligent? But by that logic, you could say the exact same thing about white liberals who decry whiteness and feel negativity towards their own race. Do they have internalized racism too? Because it's the same thing. If you zero in on the attitude measures, it would look identical. If, if white people said, uh, I think whites are on average more unintelligent and lazier than other racial groups. I would say, yeah, they have internalized racism against themselves. All right. That's very interesting. I hadn't heard yeah. that before, but I guess you're suggesting that internalized racism can happen even in a dominant group or majority group. I guess maybe we should coin that because I see this all the time, you know, white liberals decrying whiteness as the problem. Well, I don't think for a lot of people, whiteness is not white skin. Yeah. yeah. Ideology, yes. Uh, Eric, you, yes. You, you probably could speak on. Yes, it's a, it's a ideology. It's an ideology. It's not okay. a white skin. Um, I was going. I totally uh, forgot what I was going to say. You guys are so riveting. Um, <laughs> but it had everything to do. I can't tell if you're no, joking I, or not. You guys are riveting. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it had everything to do with uh, internalized racism. Um, can we can we be a little more um, nuanced and say and internalized culturism perhaps what is that um How and I, i'm not saying i feel this way i'm trying to explain you know the people that you're uh 
that you're talking about. Um, it's not so much a race thing as it is a lifestyle thing. You know, um, I know people who, you know, uh, are, are fine with black people, but are concerned about, you know, um, you know, uh, people in a certain part of town, right? Uh, so pe people, people in that part of town, they're, they're criminals and yada, yada, yada. Uh, but they don't, they're not against black people. You know, they don't think all black people are like that. They think they're like that, you know? So right. yeah, so classism, like classism. Yeah. Thing? Yeah. Because sure. it's like the and there are different town. cultures within, um, the black race, if you will. Um, yeah. So, so Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's complicated. Maybe now would be a good place to segue and we can talk a little bit about the SPSP controversy. Well, we can, or uh, Eric, I'm, I know you're not a psychologist, but uh, if you have thoughts on SPSP, that, that would be great to hear. We should probably frame this for our audience, though. Recently, there was a controversy in social psychology about anti-racism. The largest academic conference in our field, the Society for Personality and Social Psychology, began a new requirement such that anyone submitting a proposal mm. for a conference presentation would need to describe how their submission advances the DEI or anti-racism goals of the organization. And this was received well by some, but not by all. And notably, John Haidt, who is one of the more famous living psychologists, founder of Heterodox Academy, he resigned in protest from SPSP. So, uh, Dr. Smith, it would be great if you could share some of your thoughts on this. Yeah, I, I do. Uh, similar things are happening in my field. Uh, there's a uh, document circulating right now on uh, anti-racist review practices for accepting articles into journals um, based uh, prominently on Ibram X. Kendi. That's the first paragraph. Uh, and you know, I, I don't know if uh, very many other people are seen as the primary motivations of this, but uh, Kendi is, you know, boldly uh, highlighted there. And the idea is that, you know, if you want to get published, you got to cite, you know, people of color, regardless of your research topic or what you're doing. Hey, I would hate to be cited because the writer needed a black guy, uh, but B, what that does, it, it, it already, to some degree, shapes your research. Your research is never evolutionary psychology. It's evolutionary psychology and race. You know, uh, it's, it's never fill in the blank. It's fill in the blank and race, right? It's already shaping uh, what you can and will say before you even dive into the research, uh, which already kind of affects the research process. I think people should find an interest. They should cite the work that is relevant to that interest. They should come to conclusions and present that as their paper, period. You know, you're not gonna, the, 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 the quote unquote black community isn't going to improve because of citations. You know, it, it's, it's and, and to think they will, and to think somehow I'll have more dignity if I see more black people cited, that, that's to think I'm a child. You know, that, that's that's my opinion of the whole thing. It's that's how I that's what I mean by infantilization. So um, obviously, I have several problems with this, uh, as, as you can see. But I, I guess if I had to choose one is that it already is directing the research in a certain way before you even get started. And that's the opposite of what we're supposed, supposed to be doing. So I, I guess follow up question to that would be, do you think academic society should have any either recommended or suggested or required statements about their work contributing to diversity or anti-racism? 
Or do you think there's any role for organizations outside statements like those from members in order to address inequality? Uh, I'm, I'm fine with like position statements from an organization talking about their dedication to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I mean, that, that's fine. Um, it, it becomes problematic when you have to do it for everything you submit, you know, and, and somehow uh, make the case that this advances diversity, equity, and inclusion, you know, um, when your research may not be going in that direction. It's not against diversity, equity, and inclusion, but uh, it's, it's, those things are less relevant to what you're, you're doing. Uh, to be an academic is to have, is to, supposed to have academic freedom. That's not academic freedom. You're being compelled to do something. Uh, so I'm not down with that. Uh, but a, a position statement on diversity, equity, and inclusion, that's fine. What would you like such a position statement to say? What would I like it to say? Well, uh, what, what I would like it to say is more akin to uh, what we used to call anti-racism or uh, civil rights. Um, the letting uh, people of color enjoy the same benefits as anybody else uh, as an American citizen, right? Uh, the issue um, back in the day, and, and, and King talked about this, Barry, Bayard Rustin talked about this and things like that, um, they want life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, they want free speech. They want the doors open to them that are open to everybody else. They want to be included in this experiment called classical liberalism, right? So. What I want to do is abide by the original uh, definition of affirmative action, which is help people of color uh, or any kind of downtrodden group, help them realize and utilize the resources that are out there that they may not know about, you know, because they haven't been in those circles, right? Or they haven't had the opportunity uh, to really dive in and and do things like that, make a concerted effort more so than perhaps other uh, groups to to give them those resources or at least point them to those resources. Also, there is a concerted effort to weed out anybody who is discriminating based on race. For sure. Period. That's it. Right. That's all my position was that. Yeah, uh, I think we should spend some time talking about what exactly they asked people to do for SPSP. Like, what were the things that they were asking people to respond to? Uh, I would love that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. So uh, it says, evaluate to what extent your submission advances the goals of promoting equity, inclusion, and anti-racism. To do so, uh, please consider the equity statement. Blah blah blah. And then it has four categories that you could consider uh, when answering this question. One, did you use diverse research participants? So understudied, underserved populations. Um, Did you have diverse research methods? So did you use methods that promote equity or engage with underserved community? This could be like community-based research where you actually engage with the community that you're working with rather than just like studying them. diverse members of the research team and they really define this very broadly so those for underrepresented socio-demographic backgrounds which would be more of like black or or low-income folks Uh Um, but it could be an array of career stages so like early career folks or from outside of the united states or from with professional affiliations not typical of spsp such as predominantly undergraduate serving institutions or hbcus or outside of academia and um then the final thing is the actual content so did you study prejudice or discrimination or uh, critical theories or cross-cultural research and so i think when i look at this list it seems 
like a reasonable thing that almost anybody should be able to think about for a second and just think about, did you, do you have any black students in your lab? Do you have any under, uh, under resourced students in your lab, uh, Pale Grant recipients? Like you really could answer this in, in very many ways. It doesn't seem like it's excessively burdensome, but I, I am curious about your thoughts, Eric. Or um, so I, I, I need some clarification. Um, mm-hmm. So do all those things have to be met? You know, you just talk about, they're just giving you examples of stuff that fits within your response. Like anything here you could talk about and that's what we want to know. Okay. So you can just do one of those things and it's fine. Mm -hmm. You could actually do none of them. I I know somebody who said my research had absolutely nothing to do with any of these. They still got into the conference. They still presented. Yeah. Well, well, there's no problem then. I I agree. These are, these are. Uh, strongly suggested criteria. Correct. Right. Uh, okay. I mean, all right. So a couple more things. First, it is required to talk about. I mean, you could say this doesn't apply, like Manny said, and that's that's actually what I did for my last conference proposal, and it was accepted anyway. But everyone is given a score, so your statement is rated and then factored in numerically along with the actual quality of your research. They're trying to quantify the extent to which someone's proposal is doing anti-racism, which it may be a bit awkward to actually try to calculate and then weigh that score with the actual research program itself. But I also wanted to give a quick shout out to Dr. Laura King, the current SPSP president. I think Dr. King has handled this quite well. The leadership team recently posted an announcement clarifying some of the points that Manny just made and they address some of the criticisms of the new policy. They're talking about this as something that they're piloting, so it will change over time, and they really want to incorporate it in a way that works for people. So I think there's a good faith effort here, and I do think some of the objections were a bit overblown. I can also see some good faith critiques of the policy, though, and reasonable suggestions for what we can do to make it better. Yeah. Yeah. Including for me. I think, like, all of these are very different. And the question is so broadly construed that it could be BS'd like somebody could bullshit their way through and just say like, oh, I... Exactly. Right. That was my main objection here. And Dr. Smith, you spoke to this earlier. When institutions adopt anti-racism as a goal, they think they're doing something, but they're not doing much of anything. It's mostly just talking about it, mostly just symbolic. Yeah. You know, Dr. Smith, I, I, I'm just curious, um, because we've been talking about academia so much, um, and a lot of these, I think a lot of the anti-racist stuff and a lot of the what's being labeled as woke stuff in academia is really there to address racism in academia. And I'm just curious to what extent you think that there is a problem of racism in academia. Certainly there's racial inequality. There's far, you know, there's black people make 13% of the population in the United States, and they are certainly not 13% of the tenured faculty Uh, in the United States. So I'm just curious, is that in your, from your perspective, is that due to racism? Is it something else? What's going on? Uh, the whole racial balancing thing, like if there's 13% in the, you know, the town, there has to be 13% in the business. Um, I mean, I'm trying to find a nice way to say this. Um, that's, uh, that's really stupid. Sorry. <laughs> you know, uh, maybe, maybe there are, you know, you talked earlier about groups and things like that. Maybe certain groups don't care about certain uh, disciplines or or industries. I mean, I don't know if that's the case at all or or or, or not. But you know, just because somebody, I, I had there's a there's a a dean uh, uh, about a year ago, maybe two years ago, or or something like that. Uh, he was looking around and saying, uh, you know, we need to deal with racism. There's there's no black people in this room right now. 
And I was like, is, is there a bodyguard keeping them out at the door? You know, <laughs> maybe they don't want to be here again. Infantilization. Let me, you know? let me... They, they really want to be here, but they can't because they're really. Let me try to steel man that perspective. So uh, in the 1800s, there uh -huh. were no people, no black folks in academia. Yes. Um, at that point, you would say, but you and I would both agree that yeah. was because of racism. Uh, yeah. Although yeah, I mean, there, there, there <laughs> were. The 1800s. There, yeah, it was the 1800s. I mean, right. that, that being said, there, you know, um, if you count Du Bois, there was, I mean, he, he, he made the cut. You know, but, there were uh, some, right? There yeah, was like, yeah, there's yeah. like a handful of yeah, scholars handful, we could yeah. point to. But yeah. uh, they kind of are the exception, not the rule. The, mm -hmm. the strong rule, like, you know, whatever the percentage of black folks were there, they absolutely were uh, underrepresented. We move forward in time, and that line goes up, but it never reaches parity. And I'm curious, at what point in history, in the 1960s, you could still be discriminated against for being black. Yeah. Then we passed the laws that made that illegal, and plenty of people still skirted around that those laws. Right now, we still have meta-analyses that are done on uh, hiring audit studies where they basically send two resumes, one with a black name, one with a white name, that have identical uh, credentials mm -hmm. um, to different jobs and find that black people are still discriminated against in the current in the current era. They're uh. discriminated against about the same rate uh, as they were 25 years ago. So, yeah. and so at what point do we decide that actually it's just groups deciding they don't want to be here, even though we still have evidence of discrimination? It's, uh, well, first of all, I hate the fact that I didn't have time this morning because somebody submitted an essay to Free Black Thought, the journal, debunking that... Um, that idea the hundreds of studies that have been done over the years of of uh, audit studies yeah uh he's saying those studies are flawed and here's why and i haven't read it yet and now i'm definitely going to <laughs> yeah i was i was going to do other things tonight i'm reading that um but yeah i, I was like wow really okay that's but um yeah um okay so the i would say that's not correct but yeah. well i mean <laughs> i, I I would I have to read the paper. I would initially say that too, you know, but uh, I I got to I got to read this thing and see what it says. Um, okay, I mean, if that is the case, and people see a certain names and things like that, and 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 reject them, that that is a problem, and it needs to be fixed. That's not the that's not always the problem. It's not always the problem, you know. I, so, I mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I'm sorry. No, in academia, there's evidence that that happens. So like uh, admissions officers send different rates of responses to emails to black students. There's also evidence that like when you're trying to pick out a postdoc um, for your lab, people are more likely to say that the postdoc that has a black name on their resume are less likely to be um, to be qualified or, or capable of the position. Mm -hmm. um, I can share a bunch of the study, but, but basically there's a ton of evidence that there's racially biased gatekeepers in academia who keep people out. You know, I know you're saying there's not a bodyguard and I agree there's not a bodyguard, but there's HR departments and there's admissions officers and mm -hmm. there's lab managers and there's people who, I don't mean lab managers like postbacks, I mean mm -hmm. like the people who PIs of labs and all of those people make decisions and small biases on a population level can have huge effects on the amount of people who get into the field. Is it, regarding those studies, I mean, is that, isn't that, I mean, the HR departments I see are, you know, much more open-minded than that and, and brag about it uh, on a regular basis. Is that getting better? Or was that, are these studies from like, you know, 30 years ago or something like that? So the, the, 
meta-analysis that I was citing earlier okay. is by uh, Quillian et al. And okay. he basically found that the hiring discrimination is hasn't changed in about the last 25 years. Now, he wasn't okay. looking specifically at uh, academia okay. because those are hard jobs to, you know, everybody yeah. knows academia is small. It's like hard to fake a, a, a job yeah. application for a professor or whatever. Yeah. Um, now, discrimination in housing has gotten better, and there's another uh, meta-analysis that found that there's a trend down. That's that's surprising. I thought that was as bad as it was in the 70s, but uh, that's good. That's good. I'm, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. No, I mean, I, I think I think it, for me, it all comes down to the evidence, and, and from my read, and I'm working on a paper on this, and I can share uh, maybe an early draft if you're interested, is just there are there's evidence of not only discrimination of gatekeepers, but also discrimination or just mistreatment, you know, like black students in economics are more likely to say, man, I'm getting mistreated by the people around me in comparison to oh. the white people who are in that field. Uh, I'm mistreated by the professors? By the professors, by their fellow colleagues, by other students. Oh, by, the other, by other students. Yeah, that's not, you know, uh, college students are college students. That's got to unfortunately keep happening and that needs to be something uh to address yeah i'm not i'm not saying that's not a thing but uh when it comes to other things yes i mean we have to address that we have to look into it and things like that um i don't think it's i don't think it's such a big deal and maybe i'm just talking about my field here you know um, what else can i talk about you know i'm not a part of uh, uh any other kind of uh industry or even discipline right um so uh, my my uh, viewpoint is rather limited. I, I I will admit that, but I don't think the issue is so bad that you know you can, we can tell you students everything's stacked against you. You know uh, you, you're not you're not going to get anywhere. Everybody, you, did you see the study about the resumes and things like that? I don't I don't think it's there. I, I don't think it's there at all. I think it's people ignore the fact that we've made some progress. You know, uh, I, I know people who are like, it's just as bad as it was in the 40s. I'm like, eh, not really. Yeah, I wouldn't agree with that yeah. either. And, yeah. you know, I think some people just have a hard time, like, holding two competing thoughts in their head, I think. Yeah. One, being that, like, there is still racism and we need to deal right. with it. And also, things have gotten better. We're not living in the pre-civil rights era time. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that's particularly true for people who like see themselves primarily as an activist as opposed to primarily as a, as a scholar and then secondarily as an activist, like maybe I do. And I think Dylan does as well. Yeah. You know. All right. Uh, so you guys are activist scholars, but you're not scholar activists. I'm not sure of the distinction between the two. The, because the one word came first, it's more emphasized. I see. Uh, I would call myself a scholar and an activist secondarily. Okay. I'm going to follow the evidence where it goes. I think I would call myself a scholar and an activist, but keeping those things compartmentalized. I like to do political work, but not have that be directly connected with my job. Like I've done some volunteering with groups to work towards stopping climate change, but that volunteering is separate from my teaching and research. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, it makes total sense. Like, I feel weird putting scholar activist with a hyphen on my tagline. As would I. Yeah, I don't I do not do that either. Um, but I mean, I study racial and economic inequality. It's a thing that I study. That's why I'm like talking about all this, like these studies and stuff, because this is my area of, of uh, study. Mm-hmm. And so like, is a cancer doctor an activist because they're like, I want to eliminate this harmful thing called cancer. 
and I'm going to, I'm going to like, I'm going to like talk to politicians so we can improve policy around cancer research. I don't think so. Like, no. or, or, I mean, maybe they are, I don't know. Like it's all, uh, it's all semantics, but I think like I'm recognizing a problem and I want to fix it. And I want to use my research to help contribute to a better world where, where racial inequality and where the color of your skin and the class background you have to be happen to be born into is not going to make you more unhealthy or make you more unhappy or make you more likely to get fired at your job or not hired in the first place. You know, those yeah. kind of things. Okay. Um, I just shared something in the chat. You uh, are action. Um, it's about preventing targeted violence, specifically on a local level. This is across the country, but this is my... Uh, version with these uh, several counties. Um, I do a lot of work in trying to speak across differences, uh, trying to get people to talk, uh, trying to figure out how we can use uh, what I've been calling empowered rhetoric uh, to collaborate on certain things, to uh, uh, to uh, you know deal with or or accomplish superordinate goals, uh, and I, I teach those things and. This gives me the opportunity to apply it, you know, hands on in the actual community. Am I an activist? Is, is that activism? I think it, it's a form of activism. Okay. All right. Because All right, I don't know. So well, I'm, I'm not I, trying to tell you what you are. <laughs> I, I don't know either. I mean, to me, I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm doing activism, but it's, it's also my research. I'm just applying it to here. I mean, I feel the same way when I'm doing that work as I do in class talking to my students. You know, I, I, in my mind, I'm doing the same thing. I'm helping people communicate. Right. You know, so I, I guess, I mean, I get the whole scholar activist thing. I do think it can be out of balance. Sure, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think like the biggest source of imbalance is you jumped ahead of the evidence. Yeah, And you right. started, you know, you started like advocating for a thing when it turned out five years later after the replications have been done that it's all mm -hmm. bullshit anyway. Right. And I think that's that's when you run into this this problem. Um, but as long as you're evidence based, I think like for the most part, that's helpful. That's yeah. what we need more of. I evidence agree. Based activi activism. I agree. Yeah. Um, right on. We agree. <laughs> yeah, that, we ended on positive note. I We do have a final and this is really just a thought experiment type question. Okay. Quick answer and then we move on. Yeah. So uh, imagine you're in another dimension and in this other dimension, there are a panel of dials that extends in both directions almost infinitely. Uh -huh. and you can just conjure up whatever dial you want to move and they all influence some aspect of human behavior. Sometimes they're really small things like how often people cut their grass. Sometimes they're really big things like how often we engage in warfare. Mm -hmm. And so you can just pick a dial, whatever you want to conjure up, something about human nature and you can move it up or you can move it down. And you can change human nature for the better. Okay. Your, I'm assuming is your goal. Yes. So what would uh, you move? I would turn critical thinking up. Okay. To 11. 100%. Uh, yes. Yes. I would, uh, I, would, I would like to see a world where people are stopping and thinking about things regardless of their vested interests. Mm -hmm. Right. They're not doing it like you were saying before. Right? Some people like they have the conclusion they want and then they find a data that matches it. Don't do that. Right. Right. That's what I want to not see. So I would turn that one up. Yeah, that sounds great. It's very consistent with our podcast uh, <laughs> approach. So I appreciate that very much. Thank you so much, Dr. Smith, Dr. Eric Smith, for joining us. Uh, and thank you very much. I, I don't have enough conversations where you know people push back i'm trying to do that more and you guys you guys did that so thank you all right thank you so thanks much. again all right take care take care guys bye
You can follow Dr. Eric Smith on Twitter at retors underscore of underscore York, and you can find a lot of his writing at freeblackthought.com. Well, I thought that was fun. How do you think it went? Pretty good. I enjoyed uh, that conversation with Eric, uh, Dr. Eric Smith, and I felt like he is... I think there are some bad faith actors who say very similar things to what I noticed Dr. Smith saying. I don't interpret him as a bad faith actor personally. Um, but I, you know, you noticed that I started uh, or yeah, I, I started some yeah. of my questioning with him around like other bad face actors and tried to get him to disentangle his commentary from the commentary of those folks and their interests. Yeah, so I, I think you, you name drop uh, James Lindsay and Chris Rufo, who are, yeah, I, I agree with you, like antagonizers or bad faith actors, good good label for those folks. You know, maybe they don't have our best interest at heart when they make critiques about DEI and anti-racism initiatives. Mm -hmm. But Eric Smith strikes me as a fundamentally different kind of character the same in the sense that he's coming at this from a, a different ideological perspective like he describes himself as left of center lifelong democrat and right. i think values the same types of things that we value and just disagrees mostly with the wackier stuff coming out of dei initiatives and anti-racism initiatives and i think that that's an important point to make like we we, we might quibble with him about the specifics but mm -hmm. i think to correct me if i'm wrong it's not like you're or you or i are defending some of the ideas that he's criticizing we both agree on the fundamentals or we i should say we all agree on the fundamentals and i i think it it what you're also noticing is that some nefarious people use similar language and that is you know important for us to just clarify our thinking you know we we might use similar language as these other folks but that doesn't necessarily mean to, it's it's kind of like to the untrained eye these are the same types of things but they're not really yeah so i don't i don't know to what extent you know i did find it the criticism so just take for example uh him saying that anti-racism is infantilizing. I just don't know how to evaluate that claim. It's it's very nebulous. It's not tied to a specific policy. I certainly don't agree that anti-racism infantilizes people, the black folks. That, that just seems like a claim that I can't even really grasp onto and make sense of. There's no study I can read that checks and sees if, if DEI policy X causes infantilization. Like, Right. And in some respects, this is my larger, this is my like somewhat milquetoast, you know, critique of Dr. Smith is like, I, I, I have trouble. Like, it seems more rhetorical, which makes sense because he is a rhetorician. Like, that's his job. He is a rhetorician. But um, that's more of a pun, I guess. But uh, <laughs> I think like, I understand the rhetorical moves he's making. I just don't understand what is the evidence base behind them. And then when I asked for the evidence he kind of just said like i tried to put it in the book but then it got removed because it was too in your face or i don't know and so it's just like i just would love to read that i don't know what you're referring to and so it ends up just being a uh, him making rhetorical framing points and me saying i don't necessarily buy your rhetoric or framing and then we're not really moving forward i mean i, I don't know so i actually 
I, I want to pull up this study. This is a study from some folks, Sydney Dupree and oh, Susan Fisk is the uh, second author here. And the paper is called Self-Presentation in Interracial Settings, the Competence Downshift by White Liberals. So let's let's read just a little bit from the abstract here. White liberals self-present less competence to minorities than to other whites. They That is, they patronize minorities stereotyped as lower status and less competence. And then they go through some of the aspects of their studies. And I think this speaks to like from an from an evidence perspective which is what you asked for like this speaks to the kind of infantilization that white liberals exhibit toward black and brown folks and i think that also comes through in some of the wackier dei and anti-racism stuff that is almost kind of by default operating from the premise that if you are not white you cannot succeed in this system because there is need for systemic institutional reform. And that's kind of what liberal DEI initiatives are all about. Mm -hmm. But I think what he's pushing back on is this notion that someone in this group cannot possibly succeed without this type of reform. And I think he views that as infantilizing. But then there's the other stuff, which maybe cannot be captured by science because it's more about just pedagogical philosophy. Like he was saying, black kids don't need to learn basics of, you know, reading and writing and argumentation and things like that. And th this was, you know, a thing that he's clearly pushing back against and seems like a very bad idea to us, but mm -hmm. is probably not something that will appear in a science paper. Yeah. So let me react to this. Sure. As far as this paper, the the down the competence downshifting, that seems like a legitimate critique and seems like they have some pretty solid evidence across several studies showing uh, five studies showing that they that this is happening the thing that i would say is like i'm i would be very surprised <clears throat> to find out that sydney dupree and susan fisk don't support dei and are go going as hard against dei as eric smith is going so clearly they don't buy that this bit this paper like in demonstrates that DEI efforts in university settings infantilize black people and we should stop it. And anti-racism is actually real racism. That's Eric's point. And it's, and like, I don't think that they agree with that. Um, so I, I think, I think this is where we have a little bit of a semantic issue because, and this was the same thing that we talked about a little bit in our response to what John Haidt was saying. When, when folks like him and Eric Smith hear the words anti-racism or DEI, they're kind of automatically assuming the worst version of this, which does exist. And I think, you know, Dr. Smith, when we talked to him, he was like, this is pervasive right. in our academic circles. And so, of course, we're going to assume that this is what you mean when you say anti-racism. You mean a, a different form of racism towards black people and not the, you know, just general movement for social equality. So when they push back, that's what they're pushing back against. They're not pushing back against the idea of diversity as an important goal. They're saying this specific philosophy is bad. And again, just to reiterate what we we're saying before, like we agree. Depending on the specific policy, like I'm not going to make a blanket statement that I'm against like all 
anti-racism or the majority of it under a particular label or whatever. That's something that Eric might be comfortable doing, that Jonathan Haidt might be comfortable doing. And so here's the critique that that I think uh, is kind of the way I think about this. You can, let's say you're part of an organization that has a goal that you think is admirable and it's doing something worthwhile. Um, and you notice that there are missteps as there always are in complex social movements. You have a decision at that point to put yourself in opposition to that movement and criticize it from outside of it and say the movement is bad as a whole or generally or you can put you can be a, an ally within that movement and criticize it from within and say I think that what we're doing is important I agree with it I want to keep doing it here are some small issues that I've noticed that I think we should address and those those are kind of like two different approaches I think I feel comfortable with the second. I want to be part of the the movement for racial equality in academia. I don't want to be sniping at it from outside. And I feel like Jonathan Haidt has very much set himself up in opposition to the kinds of things that are happening across the country to address racial inequality. And I think that's not the right move. Like we, we have to be working towards a more racially just, just society and I, I think critic, criticism of, of that movement is important to get us to where we want to go, but I don't think setting yourself up in opposition to it is the right way to do that. So I, I think there's another angle that we need to appreciate here. And Dr. Smith was you know, kind enough to describe some of the personal experiences that he has had on the podcast with us. In, in his experience, and I know this is also true of Height and others, that kind of in-house criticism that you're describing, the latter- uh, perspective is met with extreme pushback, accusations of being a white supremacist or a racist of some kind. And that essentially undermines the kind of positive, constructive spirit that you're describing. If someone feels like any dissent, any disagreement is going to be met with this vitriol, why would you stay in that group and continue the good faith effort? Obviously, you know, I think most people would choose the former and say, you know what, I'm done with this. I, I don't want to be a part of this movement. I will criticize from the outside and say these these people have, you know, become part of a cult. They've been brainwashed. They like that. That is some of the rhetoric that we hear. It is and rhetoric. So 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 we we're we're at a, a really important crossroad. I think, you know, I was glad to see SPSP released the clarifying statements that they did in the wake of this controversy to say, look, we appreciate your constructive dissent. You do not have to pledge allegiance to any kind of ideology. You don't have to support the Kendian philosophy of anti-racism right. if you don't want to. And that that is the type of thing that makes me feel comfortable staying and saying, right. all right, I'm going to keep calling out bullshit where I see it. Hopefully, I will not be accused of being a white supremacist, but DI is very important to me. And so bad ideas should be criticized, like you're saying, and we can kind of move forward in a positive direction. I think someone like Eric Smith may just have had enough. You know, he may have had enough of the the negative treatment from others. And now, he, you know, he's just doing it a different way. And I, I got to say, I understand. Like, I get it. I, I wouldn't want to be called that. I thankfully have not been called those things. But if I was in his position, maybe I would do the same. Yeah. And just to clarify, like that is a perfect example of the kind of policy that I wouldn't that I'm against. Right. Like if, if you if simply just articulating like, hey, we're doing this, but I think we should not be doing that. We should be doing this other thing. 
if that gets you labeled as a white supremacist to the extent that that actually occurs, then I, I do have a problem with that, obviously. Um, and so um, even like specific, you know, I don't like the uh, white fragility uh, thing that Robert D'Angelo is talking about yeah. and writes her books about. I just feel like it's it's kind of this like weird uh, trap that uh, I think the the uh, Decoding the Gurus podcast did a really good job yeah. of articulating what's the problem with that. It's just like from a logical like reason standpoint, like you're just kind of trapping somebody into if you disagree with me, you're automatically right. white white and fragile. And I think that that's right. not a helpful framing for these issues. Um, that a corporate, you know, DEI uh, trainer gets to determine who's fragile and who's not because she has this like logical trap that she gets people into. Um, so I think that that like, yeah, I, the a big portion of my disagreement with Eric uh, on this issue is just like to what extent that is actually happening, and that is a huge problem. He makes it sound right, right. Like it is this this massive, huge problem in academia, and there's not a lot of evidence to support that other than him saying that I had these experiences. And I don't know, like he seems like a good guy. I, I, I'm not deriding our guest, but I don't know to what extent he just said stuff that was really inflammatory that got people to be like, man, I don't trust this dude. Some of the stuff I've seen him write online, some of the things he has said in, in speeches, I'm like, that seems like an inflammatory way to get at this problem. Uh, so you do you want to say a little bit more? On. Like, what do you, do you, do you want to elaborate a little bit? What do you think is inflammatory there? Like just, it, just the stuff we talked about, like saying DEI is infantilizing. Like, it's, oh, it would be I simple see. enough to just say like, I don't agree with DEI thing here. I think like it makes it seem like black people are less competent than whites. And I think that can be harmful potentially. But instead it's like you are infantilizing white blacks and and then it's like this very like heated debate uh, with these very strong words rather than and i get it like maybe he got called a white supremacist first like i don't know so you just object to the word infantilizing i well i mean we can get into and like without eric here it's hard for me to yeah like, get into any one of his specific things but like i do think that that is emblematic of the kind of like charged language that I think a lot of the people who are on this side of the debate like to engage with this conversation. Right. So I, I wonder to what extent there is a kind of feedback loop where some folks, again, we're, we can we can talk about the the prevalence of this. Right, right, right. But some folks will start with we are in a white supremacist country. And everything, you know, about America needs to be torn down and rebuilt. Like there's this very extremist inflammatory uh, discussion about these topics. Mm -hmm. And then someone like Eric Smith might respond by saying, hey, this is infantilizing. And we're not really talking about the meat of it, which is right. what are the problems? How can we fix them? And so I, I guess and may maybe what, what I hear you saying is the folks who are critical of the bad ideas are coming at it from not not the right angle of this, which is to say, first and foremost, like we care about these values. Right. We care about the same things. Let's try to find the best version of this. And I think that is part of what I've noticed is kind of the problem 
with a lot of things that we're struggling with in our country across the board. We yeah. rarely start from that point of where can we find common ground? What what are the things that we value together and how can we achieve those things together? There is a need to kind of stake a position and defend that position against others. And it's not good. But I, I think, you know, to the other point you're making about the prevalence of this, I've seen it too. I mean, I've seen all the things that Eric Smith is describing. Like we had a book club informally in my old psych department where we read White Fragility and then like use that to basically basically bake that into the curriculum. Mm -hmm. And so, and then we had a another workshop where a guest speaker came and talked about the aspects of white supremacy culture, which include things like punctuality or perfectionism or uh, worship of the written word or things like that. And uh, the, I mean, I, I agree with Eric that these are prevalent things. Unfortunately, I, I'm not sure how prevalent they are, like in terms of numbers. I, I couldn't tell you, you know, what percentage of people agree with these things or disagree. But I think I think it's it's more than we would like to admit. And that makes it very, very difficult for us to achieve the DEI outcomes, because anytime we mention DEI or anti-racism, people's minds go to those wacky things instead of the things we really care about. Yeah, I think we need to do an episode just on what are some of the wacky things that have come out of this stuff, uh, of this type of work, and to what extent is it totally worthless and bad actually well there's a gradient right there's like in the middle well on one side there's a bunch of stuff that's really helpful and it might even sound extreme but it's actually like these are good points and we should think about them and then like that would be maybe like white privilege stuff like people go crazy about white privilege right. stuff and it's like well no white people do have certain privileges like based on the color of their skin it's not to say that every white person is living a life of luxury but some white people uh, or, or sorry, white people on average, white skin, you know, white appearance has certain privileges that it comes with it. You don't get pulled over by the police as much, blah, blah, blah. There's just a bunch of things right. you can talk about. And people throw that in with every other wacky thing that you could talk about. And so we have to be able to like differentiate because there's a, there's myriad things. And so I think like you have something helpful, like white privilege on one side. You have stuff in the middle, which I think can be pretty innocuous. It's just like, oh, this is one way of looking at it. Sure, it's a lens you can apply to the situation, and that's fine. We can just think about it. It's not helpful necessarily. It's not harmful necessarily. That's fine. Um, and then there's stuff that's on the like the other side that is just harmful. And being able to categorize the things that we're talking about um, into those different buckets would, I think, be helpful for us and the audience and this conversation in general. Yeah, I agree. I think the part that I think is the most harmful, the stuff that I most object to is with regards to more philosophical things where it's not so much. I mean, I'll cards on the table like I support affirmative action for right. minorities. But if you look at the polling data, there's some polls and it depends on the way you frame the question. But some polls show a majority of non-white folks, including Black, Hispanic, Asian are opposed to considering race in things like college admissions or job hiring. And again, numbers do vary depending on how you ask the question. But yeah, that's I think the type it's of thing. Very much about how you ask a question, because if you say affirmative action, right. most people support it. If you call it yes. using yes. race, and you know, I mean, so 
Yes. But still, even if even if it's a substantial minority, like let's say the numbers flip and it's only 40 percent of people say they don't like that. Um, You know, if, if you make an objection in academic circles to something like that, that's the type of thing that is more often than not associated with just being actively racist. In fact, I was at a faculty meeting where that exact issue came up and and someone clearly said, like, if you are a white person of opposing affirmative action, that's racist. And it, it strikes me that if a substantial minority or even a majority, again, depending on how you ask the question of non-white folks are in agreement with this sentiment, how can that possibly be construed as racist? I, I don't I don't understand that. And that's the type of thing that I think a lot of the quote unquote heterodox people are pushing back against. They're saying minorities themselves are not monolithic. Dr. Smith said that on our podcast. He said we we can't assume that everyone thinks the same way just based on the color of their skin. And sure. and that that is that is an idea that resonates with me. So I had a couple two reactions to that. One is I don't like being in the business of determining who's racist or not, especially for something like policy differ- differences or whatever. Uh, and and what's interesting is that Ibram X. Kendi says this very similar thing in his book. He's like, people are not the really the focus of his analysis. His analysis is focused on policy. So right. it, 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 you know, a policy can be either racist or anti-racist. Now, some people can take issue with the fact that it's psychotomized and there's no like possibility of a of a policy that's neither racist nor anti-racist. And I think that makes sense too. I appreciate that criticism. Um, but so I, I'm not really, I don't like labeling people in indivi- individually, like who's racist or not. Now, some people are really obvious. Like if you're walking around with a KKK memorabilia on you, then yeah, like I, I'm fine calling you a racist. It's whatever. In this case, like supporting or not supporting affirmative action, I don't think is a clear indication, like perfect indication of whether you're racist or not. Uh, I think like if you were to do a study and you measure modern racism as a scale and yeah. you measure support for affirmative action, you're going to see that correlation, significant yeah. correlation between those two things. And I think that's fine to acknowledge that like racism correlates with with like lacking support of affirmative action. But it's all probabilistic, right? You could be talking to the guy who is on the other side of that uh, correlation because he's just one of many. And so you don't know based on that one data point if someone is racist or not. Yeah, I I think it's it's just it's weird because and maybe this is not as true at UNC, but I feel like this is very true at Maryland, a very, very blue place, overwhelming, you know, numbers in terms of those with left of center views. And I think when you're in that type of social atmosphere, there is a there there is a group polarization or group think like going on whatever you want to call it where the more wacky ideas don't get put in check as much and become more normalized and again this is where i think it's important for those of us left of center who support progressive values and initiatives to push back on some of the bad ideas but do it in the way that you were describing which is we're not abandoning the movement and the values we care about, we're trying to advance what we think are good ideas and consistent with the goals of DEI and anti-racism, but also just acknowledging where things have maybe gone too far and there's a misstep. So I, I would 
include Dr. Smith in that category with us. And I would include most people, like most people that I know personally who express reservations or criticisms toward the wacky DEI stuff are coming at it from the left. I think it, you know, maybe on Twitter sometimes gets coded as right wing, but I don't think that's accurate. I, I think the because we we swim in the blue waters like most people he, in our world are liberal. And that's mm. that's been my observation anyway. Yeah, I mean, and and to that point, like I just I agree. Most of the people I see criticizing bad ideas in DEI come from the left. But doesn't that undermine the argument that like we can't even criticize, we can't even talk about it? I don't think most of those people are being labeled racist. I don't think you're getting labeled racist. Neither am I. I do similar things in my circles. So well, we'll see who responds to this podcast and what they say. <laughs> <laughs> sure, but like I don't know. I, I think it's it's unfortunate that we have a moral panic around DEI that has been used for political purposes and propagated by James Lindsay and and by his ilk and and Chris Rufo and all the different organizations that are involved too. I mean, maybe we could pause here and I could pull up, I have like a, a document where I've just like, there are so many right-wing funded organizations who are building up this moral panic, including Fox News and OAN and, and all the different uh, organizations around trans issues, around anything woke. Like there's just a whole moral panic around wokeness and it's hard to disentangle what's true from what is part of that moral panic. Thanks for listening and join us next time on A Bit More Complicated. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe to our podcast, leave a nice rating and share with a friend. And if you have a reaction you'd like to share with us, please find us on Twitter at A Bit More Pod or send an email to morecomplicatedpod at gmail.com.